Welcome to It's Lit Time with Dr. Tess. I'm Tess Martinez. I'm an English teacher. And on this podcast, we talk about anything that has a storyline from epic film trilogies to picture books. This is the show where literature gets lit. All right, everybody, welcome to It's Lit Time with Dr. Tess. I have a special guest today, my friend, Christy Austin. Christy, we've been friends for a long time. I don't know the actual number of years, but it's It's been a long time. It's been a long time. (laughs) We were just talking yesterday about how we had a sleepover with one of our friends, Kristen. If you listen to this, Kristen, shout out to you. We watched Pan's Labyrinth. We watched a whole bunch of movies that night. We have a lot of good memories, I guess, is what I'm saying. Yeah, so. this goes way back. We were like in high, high school, school, like yep. 15. It has been a long time. Yeah, so. and then and now and then we both ended up back. Well, we started out in North Carolina, and then we both went our separate ways, and then we ended up in Michigan. So kind of kind of cool. Yeah, but, we reconnected, and yeah, yeah, it's been fun. So today, Christy is here to talk about what makes what is a lousy book in, in keeping with my, you know, my, what is titles. Um, we're calling this one. What is a lousy book? Uh, Christy is a writer. Christy is a very avid reader and, um, she wanted to talk about, and I think this is a great idea too, things that will make her stop reading a book and put it down because nobody has time to read bad books. Um, especially not someone who is a mother and, you know, like has a life and all that kind of stuff. And so is is working a lot is always on the road. Like, yeah, if I'm reading a book, it's, you know, I'll give any book a chance, but at some point I have to weigh, like, is this worth my time to finish the story and really be invested in this universe, especially if it's a series, right? you know, oh, and not just so one book. Yep. Yeah. yeah. So today's episode, I think is going to be really helpful for those of you who are writers so that you can avoid these things. And I want to just start off by saying, we're not saying these things to be um, judgmental or to make you paranoid. Um, we're saying so that you can see from a reader's perspective, um, things to just be on your guard for as you're editing and revising and that kind of stuff. Um, But hopefully, even if you're not a writer, this will be an interesting episode for you um, because maybe you've made some of the same same observations as you've been reading and uh, maybe you have also put down a book for some of these same reasons or thought about putting it down. I know some people are determined to never quit reading a book. I'm kind of like that. There are very few books that I've quit reading, but... Um, Anyway, uh, so I'm going to mostly be asking the questions today and uh, letting Christy share, but I might jump in um, now and then with some some examples or some questions. Um, But let's start off with the first thing um, that you had on your list here, which is a big one, grammar errors. Yes. Okay, so jumping right in. The first thing I would like to say before we even get into this just very briefly is every writer in existence ever has made these mistakes Mm -hmm. every single one i mean tolkien and george r R. martin and jk rowling every single one of them is guilty of these mistakes now it's easy to think of them as perfect and their work as flawless but you don't see what made it to the cutting room floor you do not see what they deleted and they're really really rough first drafts everyone has done at least some of these most authors have done all of them at some point so making these mistakes does not mean you are a bad author and no there's no one ever that hasn't made any of them right that's very true and some of the mistakes I mean, even made it into print yeah. you know but um yes. that's i'm glad you brought up from the, that <laughs> right but i'm glad you <laughs> yeah. brought up from the very beginning the importance of editing because a lot of the stuff like if you think you're going to crank out a great book on the first draft 
think again, you know, like there's a reason why pre-writing is something that your, your high school teacher probably talked about. So anyway, yeah. Talk about your first one here, Christy. Okay. So number one on the list is probably the simplest and easiest to correct of all of these problems. And that is grammar errors. Nobody likes a book with grammar errors. It's just such an, you know, an easy mistake to make, but such an easy to fix one that if it's in there, it means that no one has really read this book, probably not the author or the editor, if they even had an editor, which gets into the dangers of self-publishing, which is another topic for another day. But um, any book can have grammar errors in it. If you don't have an editor, your book probably will have at least one, maybe more than one. So what I've got written here, and I'm just going to read this out real quick. Um, Everyone makes mistakes, and one or two may be forgivable. You know, everyone misspells words. Everyone uses the wrong name occasionally when you're, you know, distracted in your book. It happens to the best of us, or, you know, in your essay or whatever it is you're writing. I have even read popular, traditionally published novels where there were mistakes that both the author and multiple rounds of editors missed. It happens. It's going to happen. Um... But that being said, and the real reason you don't want them, grammar and spelling errors completely break a book's immersion. The reader isn't focused on the narrative. They're focused on the mistake. That is all they will notice and all they will remember. You know, if someone's pointing a gun at your character and you're worried they're going to die, but you spell the word gun wrong, guess what they're <laughs> going to get from that scene? They're pointing know? a canoe at your head or something. Like <laughs> yeah. <that>. yeah. <laughs> and suddenly it's hilarious and yeah. you just break the immersion. <laughs> yeah. Um, it shows a lack of attention to detail and a lack of knowledge about writing if these make it into the final draft. And again, it happens. It happens to the best authors. Um, but the best way to avoid mistakes is simply not to make them. But obviously, that's impossible. Um, professionals may make fewer of them. They are still going to make them. But the difference between pros and amateurs, in my opinion, is that true professionals edit their work well enough and have someone else edit their work well enough that those mistakes do not make it into the final draft, like ever. They'll make those mistakes, but they will always, always catch them. Um, let's see, if there are errors in your work, it's best to catch them before they make it into the first draft of your book, much less the second or the third, or God forbid, the final mm -hmm. published manuscript. Um, that's why I recommend every author, even self-published ones, should have an editor. This doesn't mean you spend a lot of money. You can get fairly cheap editing. You can even, if you have good friends, ask one of them to read it for free, although yeah. that's a big ask. But, you know, just have someone besides you read your manuscript, yeah. preferably someone who's being paid to do it, who's a professional. If not, just someone beside you should read that final draft yeah. before the world sees it. Yeah. So I will instantly put down a book and stop reading if any of these ha things happen. These are the things that will make me quit a novel or quit a series. Um, grammar errors that are numerous and should have easily been caught with basic editing, like confusing your and your or having like multiple typos. Mm -hmm. um, point number two, if there are errors on the first page or even in the first chapter, this is the reader's introduction to your work and it makes a very bad first impression to have like a misspelled word or really confusing sentence like that early in the story. They're not even into the work yet. If they see typos or a sentence they just can't make sense of because of the way it's written, they are going to stop reading. Yeah. Um, if a writer, and this, this last one's really tricky because now we're getting into stylistic choice rather than just straight grammar. 
if a writer deliberately breaks grammar rules as a stylistic choice, but they do so in a way that's jarring and breaks immersion. Uh, many writers choose like a narrative voice or a narrator that has like a distinct style and storytelling pattern, and that's okay. You can break the rules sometimes as long as you're consistent, but this is a big, big but. It takes a talented, <laughs> sorry. I that's okay. That phrasing. I was trying to keep a straight face there, but anyway. <laughs> Things you should never say in a podcast. <laughs> uh. Anyway, <laughs> sorry. Um, It takes a really talented author to know when and how to break the rules. As with any profession, if you're going to break the rules, do it right. And it also takes a lot of commitment and revision to get it right. Mm -hmm. So the moment that these stylistic choices become confusing and difficult to read, the audience is going to put that book down. You know, if I don't understand what's happening, even if it's a deliberate choice, like if you pick a really choppy sentence structure to build up tension, but it just doesn't work you know there no one's really going to sit through that because it's confusing to figure out you're having to sift through the grammar to find the meaning and it again breaks the immersion um so such choices if you make them should never detract from the quality of your work Mm -hmm. ever yes I agree I hope my students are listening to this Christy I loved your advice about just (laughs) have somebody other than yourself read whatever it is before you put it out there in the world. So important. I want to add something here. And this one's so obvious that you didn't even put it on your list, but um, I, yet I've seen it, which is factual errors. I was reading a nonfiction book recently that had a very clear factual error in one of the sentences. And it was, it was a brand new book. So I think it was like first printing. So hopefully somebody's going to catch that, but it was by a major publisher and somebody should have caught that somewhere along the line. And it made wow. me have a little bit less respect for the author, unfortunately, because up to that point, I was really, really on board with her. Mm-hmm. And I still was after that, but I started to doubt her intelligence a little bit, which it was, it was not a good, it was not good. Yeah. So, and I'm really yeah. glad you said that because I've encountered the same thing again, mostly with self-published authors, but yeah, some of this like makes it into print for big name authors and mm-hmm. big name publishers. Yeah. If there are factual errors, historical inaccuracies, mm-hmm. um, things, you know, if you're describing something and you get it wrong, your readers will notice and they will put that book down or at the very least question it and doubt your credibility. Like you were saying. Yep. Very good. Really unfortunate because that those things shouldn't, I mean, especially grammar errors, they shouldn't matter, but they do. (laughs) So you can be a really smart person and use bad grammar. Um, but it's really hard to believe that as a reader. If no one can understand what you're saying, then it doesn't matter how smart you are and how talented you are if you can't communicate that. And if you're right, you're a writer, your job is kind of communication. So, yeah. Yeah. All right. Christy, tell us about the second item on your list. Okay. Um, this is getting more into the meat and potatoes of the story. And I've just used a cliche, which should also be avoided, but um, <laughs> I'll get to that in a minute. <laughs> um, handling one of the big four elements poorly. And I will define what these are. Um, In my opinion, there are four critical elements that make up any story, and especially any novel, like a fiction novel, that is plot, characters, narration, and dialogue. Those are the four things that just kind of build it from the ground up. And there are lesser ones, too. There's tone, there is, you know, pacing. But today, I'm just going to be talking about these four. Um, Most authors have strengths and weaknesses, and you may be better at one and not so good at some of the others. That's pretty normal. It's important to recognize this though and play into your strengths. 
So if you really struggle with dialogue but are very good at narration, maybe it's better for you to have a narration heavy novel and vice versa. If you're not really good at narrating things but you're really good at plot building, spend more time in the plot and kind of skip the narration, you know, play into your strengths. If one of these elements is handled poorly in a work, then an author has created a flawed story. If two or three are done poorly, they've created a bad one. And all four, I'm sorry, but it is straight trash. If none of these are handled well in a work, um, that last category is really rare for anyone to ever even read it because authors in that category, usually it flops before it gets off the ground. They're not talented and they don't really have much of a base, but occasionally it sees the light of day and people read it. So um, the good news is if you think you might be in that category, you probably aren't because that is the oblivious to their own flaws category. So if you worry that you're a bad author, you're probably not in that fourth category because they, they never even think about it or question. So um, let me break these down further. Plot, um, what distinguishes a good plot from a bad one? It's very simple. A good and keep in mind, this is all my opinion. This is not scholarly based. It's kind of what I consider to be common sense and what I've worked out. So you may disagree, Tess, and some people may disagree, but um, in right. my opinion, <laughs> for oh, what it's you. worth, okay. that makes me feel okay. better. <laughs> um, so what distinguishes a good plot from a bad one? It, it, in my opinion, it's very simple. A good plot feels organic, like it was discovered. The reader is pulled into this universe and wants to be a part of it. A bad plot will feel contrived as if the author is pushing it in a certain direction, sometimes with brute force. Like, you know, you're on a roller coaster with a track and there's a way you're supposed to go. They don't really allow themselves to explore creatively different possibilities. They're like, this is what's going to happen. It's set in stone. And if it's not working, who cares? Too bad we're doing it anyway. Like they'll never rethink that or try to get it to work better. Um, so yeah, bad plot is very contrived. Good plots are organic. In a bad plot, the reader takes more of a spectator role because there's just no place for them in this work. It's not inviting them in to participate, it's asking them to sit down and watch. And the key difference here, I think, there, there are reasons for this, but one of the main things I've noticed that creates a bad plot is author arrogance. A good author knows to let the plot develop on its own. You know, sometimes intervention is necessary. You'll have to get in there and make something work, but they trust the creative process and the universe they've discovered. A bad author has no connection to their work or their audience. You know, in some cases they're doing it out of a desire for fame or recognition and others they're role-playing as a hero with no flaws or obstacles. And that feels contrived because it is like, no one wants to read that. So that's kind of the discussion about plot. So that's what makes a good plot from a bad one. Um, point number two, characters. And this one's really simple. I'm not even gonna spend a lot of time on it, but good characters feel like real people. They feel like your friends, they feel like you're hanging out with them. They, you really get invested in what they're doing and where they're going and how they feel. Bad characters feel like two-dimensional cardboard cutouts. Mm -hmm. You, you just, they're very wooden, you know, they're very flat and you can't really relate to them. Every character in a book should have their own backstory, motivations, personality, distinct voice and style of speaking and their own hangups. Now the reader doesn't necessarily have to be aware of all of that but it should factor into the author's decisions when portraying their protagonist. Yeah. Um, point number three, narration. And we talked about this, this is, this is one of the more difficult ones, again, on this list to get right. Mm -hmm. So I'll spend a lot more time talking about narration here. Um, narrative voice is one of the most difficult aspects of literature to master and quality narration can make or break a novel. 
um, a simple definition of narrative voice here is just the way the story is told, its language, its tone, its pacing, and its overall feel. These are some of the minor aspects and they all play into narration. Um, it's such a detailed aspect of writing. It almost deserves its own topic and it can be very complicated and very intimidating, especially for newer authors. So I think most authors just choose a neutral narrator and just use your own words to tell the story. I think the majority of stories do it that way. Sometimes though, you do have a narrator. It's a specific individual that is telling the story. And this is harder to pull off because then the narrator is a character as well who needs the same treatment as other characters in the story. So you have kind of a nesting element to the characters there, you know, who is telling the story. But regardless of which type of voice is present in a work, it needs to be well done. And again, this is my opinion, but a rule of thumb is that when in doubt, don't for narration. Yeah. Um, messing with the narration is very, very dangerous. Um, things like jokes, gimmicks, puns, trickery, and opinions are best left out of the domain of narration. Now, obviously, this has done been done well before, and there's some authors that have a narrator that can do that, but it is exceedingly difficult. Yeah, we were talking about this a little bit yesterday. It was a lot more common back in like the 19th century novel. Um, if you read mm -hmm. Charles Dickens or George Eliot, a lot of times their narrator will show some outrage or some sarcasm or go off on this like um, kind of philosophical tangent. Um, yeah. You could do that today, but readers don't expect it and typically don't have patience for it. Yeah. So. And there are a few books that have done it very, very well. Um, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, mm -hmm. outstanding. And then I also thought of another example of this. And this is a C.S. Lewis. I, I believe it's Voyage of the Dawn Treader, the first line. Um, there was a boy named Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. Yeah. I mean. <laughs> yeah. Good line. It's hilarious. And the narrator should, is that really something the narrator should even say? I don't know, but it works very well yeah. in that instance. Yeah. Because the reason they shouldn't, in my opinion, unless you're doing it well, is because it's telling rather than showing. But in that case, that's hilarious because the narrator is just straight up telling you all. Yeah, you know, that reminds me, you see that more often, I think, in children's literature. Um, mm -hmm. But there's a way to do it that is insulting and there's a way to do it that's not insulting. Um, and children are really mm -hmm. sensitive to that. And actually, that's getting into a later one of your later points. But we can come back to that. Yes. So, yes. Anyway, yeah. So, yeah. And C.S. Lewis was a young adult author. So, or at least that series was yeah. um, the, the Narnia book. So, but yes, um, if you are unsure, if you're going to do stuff like this in your narration, and I have written a few pieces where I have done it most of the time, I don't, because it's just so hard. Unless you are 100% sure that it is the right thing to do, don't do it. And that is a huge risk and it carries a huge risk of failure, but great reward if you do it right. Most of the time it's not appropriate to the work or the writer is just not very good at doing it. And like I said, I have done it it's very, very hard because you have to reread everything and not only edit your characters, but ed edit your narrator as well. It adds so much more to a story to think about. So unless you are 100% convinced this is what you do and you're very, very committed to it, don't even go there. Now, if you are, go for it. I fully encourage it, but be aware <laughs> of what you're getting into. Yeah. Um, it's getting into unreliable narrator territory where the audience doesn't just doubt the characters, they doubt the narrator because they don't know if they can trust the information that's being given to them. Um, yeah, so I've used the car engine metaphor. Messing around with narrative tone is like doing precision work on your car's engine. This is what's driving. No one will notice if you don't touch it. 
But if you decide to tinker around and you mess it up, your car breaks down. Mm. Like your novel could fall apart if the narration is not good. Yeah. If you tweak the sound of your narration, it should be consistent and have a specific purpose. Mm. So, that's good. and lastly, real, or do you have anything to no. add to that or? No, no, okay. that one. Okay. Uh, last point is dialogue. Um, and again, this is kind of short because it's pretty self-explanatory. Some authors struggle hard with this and for others it comes easily and there doesn't seem to be much of a middle ground either. Some people just really nail it every time and then some struggle really hard with it. Um, and if you're one of those people that struggles with dialogue, I recommend being very light on the dialogue because it, it takes a lot of effort to get it right. But for some people, they just they talk in their book and everyone understands it and it's great. And that's a wonderful skill to have. It's not universal, but the one thing it should always be there, no matter what dialogue should always feel authentic. And the best way to do that is to get inside each of your characters heads and speak as they do with their intentions, inflections, internal monologue in the background. So one thing I started doing, if I'm writing something with dialogue in it, which isn't most of what I do, but you know, I have done it. Um, I read it out loud to myself, like mm -hmm. in a mirror. If there's a conversation, I will have that conversation to myself in the mirror. I will read it out loud and listen to it, really listen mm -hmm. to it. If it sounds awkward when you read it out loud and, and have that conversation, then it probably needs revising. Yeah. So, you know who else used to do that? Charles Dickens. He <laughs> used to like make funny faces in the mirror and stuff and like try to almost become his characters or embody them. Um, mm -hmm. there's this funny story about one time his daughter walked in and he was doing that and she was scared because he was so just so intense um yes, oh, I, yeah go ahead. I, I've had my husband come in the bathroom when I was doing it in the bathroom and say are you okay <laughs> yeah because he could hear me yelling from across the house and I was okay. like yeah I'm, I'm fine we're, we're good me yeah. alone in the bathroom screaming at myself in the mirror we're fine that's right we yeah. are fine you and your character <laughs> yeah we're fine <laughs> oh my goodness all right Let's move on to your third point. Yes, this one's real quick. Um, this isn't one that necessarily makes the book a bad book, but it is one that makes me completely lose respect for the author. And by that extension, make a bad book, not a bad quality book, but a bad, just a bad overall feeling. Mm -hmm. This is highly offensive content that is there simply for the purpose of shock and outrage. Yeah. No other reason, like enough said. I mean, it's one thing to put controversial material in a book because many of the best authors do it. And I'd even argue you can't have a good book without some conflict, controversy of some form in there. It should always be done with a purpose, though. Um, if you're just there doing it as a joke, like, haha, someone's going to find this offensive. Um, if it's just there simply for its own sake, in my opinion, but again, this is how I think many people feel, too it's garbage and I won't read it. Yeah. Just, I will put that book down. Shock value content is a gimmick and it doesn't contribute to the narrative. It pulls the reader out of the story. It's very disruptive and they'll really have a hard time getting back in because that is all they will remember. Mm -hmm. And it's insulting, you know, it's yeah. just, it's not good. Yeah. So I will not read a book if it is shock value. Yeah. That reminds me of something I was just talking about on the previous podcast episode that I was recording about the Godfather. We talked a little bit about, cause those movies are all rated R and they all have some mm -hmm. pretty, um, pretty violent scenes in them, violent deaths. And I asked the guy that I was talking to 
Um, do you think that these are in, these scenes are in here just to pander to audiences who like blood, or do you think that they actually serve the story? And he said, yes, he thinks they actually serve the story. And mm-hmm. I won't go into that now. You can listen to that episode. But um, yeah, mm-hmm. if, if there's a reason why something is in a book, then then good. If you there's no reason other than like you think it's cool or you yeah, you want to shock people, that's yeah, not a good yeah. reason. So and I think there is an audience for that, but yeah, there is. It's true. There is. It is not an audience I personally want. There are people that love that. Yeah. They love being insulted and reading reading nasty stuff. I mean, they're gonna buy what they're gonna buy and they're yeah. gonna read but what they're gonna read. I personally do not want to produce content for an audience like that. And as a reader, I don't want to read it personally, yeah. me personally. And I think the audience for that is pretty small. So if you do that, there is a very limited pool of people who will enjoy it and many, many more who will not. Yeah, I so. agree. So you've already kind of mentioned your your fourth point here, which is that it's mm-hmm. insulting. But I think that that can you can insult readers with more than just shock yeah. value or um, what I was kind of talking about with children's literature, I think is talking down to readers. Um, yes. But you have a couple other ways here that you can insult people. So what are those? <laughs> yeah, different reason. Insulting for a different reason. Mm-hmm. So shock value is insulting just in every way possible. I mean, somebody is going to be offended always and probably most people. But yeah, my point number four, it's insulting. But this is for a different reason. This may not even be intentional. You know, intentional insults are one thing, but you can unintentionally insult your audience too. Um so yes, avoid being insulting. And here's how, um, never, ever, ever, you never want to insult your readers, like never. And that, the ways you do that, don't insult their intelligence, like don't assume they're stupid. Um, don't take a pretentious moral high ground. Don't say, well, you know, I'm I'm here to preach on a soapbox too, because people don't really want to read that. It, and, you know, I'll go into all of these in a minute in more detail. Don't assume your reader is ignorant. If they need something explained to them, fine, but you don't need to explain everything as if they've never been out their front door before and know, you know, how the world works. Um, and this last one is really important. Don't write it with a chip on your shoulder. Don't be angry at them. And you would think who would ever do that, but I have a wonderful example of that. So this doesn't mean you can't have insults, anger, immorality, or lack thereof in a book or anger in a book. That's okay. Again, it's like the the controversial content. Readers will stick around so long as it's not directed at them. But the moment it is, they will be tossing that book in the trash. Um, now it's time for that example. And Tess, we talked about this already. I will. I am not going to name this book. Uh, it's a book many people have heard of, and many people enjoy it too. Many people seem to enjoy it by a popular, traditionally published author. This is a book you can probably go out buy in the books or you can order it off Amazon. It was a pretty popular book when it came out. Um, so let me get into this example I have. Um, since this point might be vague or confusing. Yeah, so this book, I think it even won several awards, but it was one I read in high school. I was assigned to read it and I read the whole thing, cover to cover, you know, start to finish. And I Rare absolutely... <laughs> <laughs> oh, I did that to all my books. Yeah, yeah I enjoyed I reading. Too. Or, yeah. yeah, yeah, I yeah. was I was that person that yeah. read just about everything that was assigned. Yeah. Um, there were many of them. <laughs> um, but I absolutely hated this one, hated it. And that was pretty rare because I enjoyed most of the books I read, even ones that people in my class didn't. But this book, good grief, I did not enjoy it. It was, it was probably, and it was rare. It was a book I hated that wasn't hard to get through. It was a pretty easy read and I finished it, but 
I hated every word. And um, there was nothing wrong with its literary merits. The plot was fine. The writing was decent. Again, this was traditionally published. It didn't make many of the other mistakes on this list. But the one thing that was wrong with it, and one thing that made me want to stop reading, even though I didn't, because I was assigned to read it and would have a test on it, um, the author just seemed to be angry at their intended audience. They had a disdain for their readers, and it came through every word. Like, this person was really angry at you, and he was writing a book to tell you how angry he was at you. And I was like, why would anyone do that? Um, But this person did, and you know, it came through every word of the text, like, even as a teenager, I picked up on it, like, this author, they have an axe to grind, and this book was intended to teach the readers a lesson in the most overt, least subtle manner possible, like, it was just so bad, (laughs) the narration was heavy-handed, the characters were almost caricatures, and again, this was a talented author to be able to pull that off and still have a good book, which speaks to how good this book should have been, that they could do that, but the anger and the disdain for the audience just kind of ruined it. There was no nuance to it whatsoever. It killed what could have been otherwise a very good book. And sadly, it was a book that addressed racial issues, which is a very important topic that is very necessary in literature and very welcome. Like there's a huge audience for that. People want to read it. People want to discuss it. And it's necessary, you know, from a historic perspective, from a cultural perspective, but it was so badly done that it was off-putting. Like, this is not how you do it. Um, And I've written this down here. Anger is a good tool that can be used as motivation, but it's like fire. A little bit lights up the room, but too much destroys it. And this author was just consumed by their personal biases. And rather than using that to their advantage, like you can use anger as a very good tool to help you write better because you're angry, you're on fire. But if your anger anger is directed at your audience, that's not a good thing. And this author was just overcome by their personal bias to write a book that taught a lesson to the readers um it's been done very well in other works but it was done poorly here and it completely defeated their purpose Mm. um i wanted to like this book and i finished it you know i read the whole thing Mm. but nobody enjoys a book that makes them feel unwelcome from the very first page and ironically that's the reason i remember this book but not for a good reason right (laughs) yeah yeah that's Wow, that's really interesting. Also, you're you're bringing a lot of good similes to this conversation. Anger is like a fire. I like that one. The car engine one. You got. I'm, I'm serious. Like these <laughs> memorable. I'm gonna I'm gonna remember these. And I agree with you. I think it's really really hard to talk about morally outrageous issues without uh, without taking it too far. Mm-hmm. And I think you have to have whatever you want to call it, charity, empathy for your readers mm-hmm. and know that mm-hmm. they're, yes, you're, you're critiquing something that they probably do or believe or stand for or whatever, but you're critiquing mm-hmm. it because you care about them. If you're a good author, you want them to understand. You don't want them to be, you don't want to just walk up to them, and punch them in the face, which right. is what this author did. <laughs> He's right. like, you're trash. <laughs> and I'm like, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Not really. Uh, yeah. Nobody wants to be told they're trash book I think that's no pretty good life principle that might as well have been the title you're trash trash. and I kind of want to write a book called that now but again that's getting into shock value content which is highly offensive and (laughs) off-putting but if I saw that on a title it would get my attention this book should have been called that because that's what it was about it was just nothing but insulting the readers and Yeah. yeah again it was so close to being a very good book but it wasn't because it broke this rule 
And I actually went and deep dived and read the reviews on Amazon about this book many, many years after I'd read it. And many of them said the same thing. It had quite a few three-star reviews that said exactly what I'm saying here. Should have been a good book, but the author's pretentiousness right. took front and center and just steamrolled everything else in the story, including the message they were trying to deliver. That was the biggest criticism in the hundreds and hundreds of reviews it had, and you saw it over and over again. So I'm not the only person that thinks this about this book. Again, I'm not putting this author or this book on blast. If you want to read it, it's out there. And if you're into literature, modern fiction, you there's a good chance you already have. And if you have, you probably know which book I'm talking about. <laughs> but <Yeah. laughs> it was that memorable. Yeah. Uh, moving on. Yeah. So point number five things that will make me put a book down is, and this one's, you're going to laugh, predictability or lack thereof. Yeah. Um, how does that work, right? How can something be both a good thing and a bad thing by, you know, the same thing? The answer is that there's a balance. You don't want too much of either. You don't want a book that's too predictable and you don't want a book that is so completely unpredictable that you don't know what's going to happen, you know, in the universe at all because you don't have that grounding. The readers should always feel like they know what they want to happen, but there should be a sense of peril. It's okay to have events that blindside them, but not on every page. The reader will, if that happens, the reader gets plot fatigue, they put your book down. Conversely, it's okay to have foreshadowing, but this should almost always be vague, not overt. If your work is too predictable, the reader gets bored, and guess what? They'll put your book down. Uh, this is a delicate balance that can be hard to get right. You know, you don't want too far in either one of those directions. So um, the author should give great consideration to this. And I've provided some examples and I hope they're good examples, Tess. You've already read these and yeah. Okay, I'm kind of, I hope these are good examples. I came up with them very quickly just as generalizations. Bad foreshadowing is, for example, the main character walks into a scene, like a room, for example, or, uh, you know, outdoors. It has no environmental description whatsoever, except for some plot device that you just know will come in handy later. Uh, again, going back to our gun example, the gun on the table is the only thing that's described in the room. Is and you're like, hmm. Somebody, Jordan always talks about Chekhov's gun. Is that what you're referring to? Have you heard that term? I don't believe so. I don't think that's the same thing. Let me okay, hear. okay. That's, well, I guess it's, it's sort of, I guess Chekhov's gun is a more po a positive example, kind of like what you're talking about. Like if a gun shows up early oh. in the story, then it better be used later. And it probably will yes, be Yes, that's what that is. Yeah. I think this is overlapping a little bit, but yeah. again, it's a, a little bit different. Um, yeah. if, the, if the only thing, in, you know, yes. And that brings up a very good point too. Like if you have something in the story, this person is saying it needs to be relevant, which I have some criticisms, mostly I agree with. However, it should not be the only thing that is in your book. Right. So if you have that gun and it's going to be used later, but that's the only thing in the book, then that's boring. You yeah. need like more of a world, more of a universe. Right. You know, everything in the book, it shouldn't be irrelevant, but it shouldn't be the only thing that's described. So if that gun's on a table, then great. If it's the only thing that is described about your scene and your setting in your room, you've got a problem. Yeah. Um, or let's say your character walks into the subway car and sits down for their commute to work on public transportation. And if they're, they're packed in there, it's so crowded, but you only describe one person that the reader just knows is going to be an important plot device later and there's no purpose for describing them other than they will be important later. That's boring. Yeah. You know, they see 
the one person that they know they're supposed to notice and that's it. It's like the reader doesn't want handholding like that. It's interpreted as incompetence or laziness when the author only feels the need to describe things that directly move the plot along. Your reader wants more. They want to know more about this world and this universe. Don't assume they're stupid or uninterested. If you're really interested in their universe, they will be too. Communicate that. They want to see it. Um, let me give an example of good foreshadowing. So we've talked about bad foreshadowing. Now good foreshadowing. A character sits in a work meeting, um, which sounds inherently boring, but I've read <laughs> quite a few works and seen a few movies where it's not. So yeah. don't think the sitting around means a boring work. Um, I think that's a common misconception, and this is a whole other topic, is that you need just constant action to make it a good book. You know, let's let's go back to our work meeting. So your character sits in a work meeting, they're given four or five scenarios, all of which could happen, but some are more likely than others and none are guaranteed. So you don't really know what's going to happen. You just know the stakes, you know what's most likely, what's least likely, some may never happen. There's also elements outside of that room that are unpredictable, which could change any of those scenarios at any time or even introduce new ones. Something like that brings tension into the story because the reader has a sense of what's happening and what could happen, but not what's going to happen. So yeah, that, you know, something like that where you have an inclination of the stakes and what's going to happen, but you don't know what, what it's gonna be. Always leave that big. Always leave that as a question mark. Right. So I guess I wonder if you could summarize this by saying that a book that has good foreshadowing is a book that you could look back at the at the whole thing after you've read it and say, oh, I can see the structure. I can see how it all mm -hmm. unfolded. Of course, that makes perfect sense. There weren't any, you know, non sequiturs or, or logical jumps or whatever. Mm -hmm. But while mm -hmm. you're reading it, you may not necessarily see the structure of it. And you're just along right. the ride. Um, it's not predictable yeah but it's again it's not chaotic either you don't want a complete unpredictability you right. want those hints you want those inclinations but you don't want the reader to just guess everything that's going to happen because that's a boring book right I agree so yeah okay tell us about your sixth thing that will make you put down a book okay um number six is amateur quality writing so this is probably the least bad offense on the list because all of us are guilty of it. Everybody, every writer that has ever produced work has made something of lesser quality or that they're not necessarily proud of. And if you t they tell you they haven't, they are lying. Everybody's done it. Um, in fact, it's a sign of a good writer to recognize your failings and improve on them. So every writer, you know, should, if they're decent, admit that they have produced something that was of amateur quality or parts of it were. You know, everybody's done it, I've done it. That being said, if an entire book is of amateur quality, it probably won't be successful. This is, you know, this is what distinguishes the amateurs from the pros. You know, pros can recognize when they've produced something of amateur quality and fix it. But, you know, I've read books, usually it's a debut novel or, you know, just kind of a hobby author, but it's amateur quality and that can be okay. There is still an audience for it, but it won't be a big audience because it just doesn't sound professional. Um, the more difficult it is to read, the more alienating it is to the readers and the sooner they'll put it down. This can be, these can be vague complaints like doesn't flow well, choppy sentence structure, or it can be more specific criticisms, uses tropes and cliches, inconsistent behavior from the protagonist. If there's just something that doesn't make sense or is difficult to read, 
in there somewhere. Now, even the best works will have amateurish qualities somewhere within them. Uh, it is very, very rare, I'd say even impossible to have a novel or a book or a series that doesn't have amateur portions in it somewhere, amateur sounding portions. Um, you know, even the best works have it. But a good novel sounds like it was written by a professional because the author gives it the attention that a professional author would. They have the skill to do that, the knowledge to, to do that, and also the humility to do that. They don't just look at their first draft and say, this is perfect. Every word I've written is the word of God. We're publishing this because yeah. don't do that. <laughs> no yeah. one should ever do that. Um, the good news is that most amateur mistakes are fixable with experience, revisions, and a good editor. Yep. Again, an editor will help you identify those portions and help you fix them. Yeah. And I would add too, and Christy, you and I have talked about this a lot. Um, if you are able to, it's, and it, this is for the authors who are listening, um, being part of a writing group is uh, mm -hmm. re really, really beneficial because those are people who, um, they're not a teacher, so they're not grading you. They're not an editor, so mm -hmm. they're not deciding, you know, and they're not gatekeeping. Um, they are just people who are writers like you and they want to help you be better. And so if they mm -hmm. give you criticism, it's going to be given with constructively. I mean, occasionally yeah. you get like a toxic person in a writing group or whatever, but I've been in some good ones, both in person and online. And, um, yeah. it's really, it's really neat to, uh, to be part of that and, um, you know, to get some, you know, even early fans of your work. That's fun. Yeah. But also people who will tell you like, even like your characters aren't acting consistently or things like that. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah. It's like beta readers. Yep, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It is a group of beta readers. Again, you need someone besides yourself to at least hear or read your work before it ever sees the world. And a writing group is a good way to do that because uh, I think most professional authors and publishers have beta readers and that's what a writing group is. It's like an informal group where you all contribute and read each other's work. It also, I'm glad you brought that up that, you know, occasionally you get a toxic person. It's also a really good lesson to know what advice to take and what advice to ignore. Yeah. <laughs> because new authors, and I've been really bad about this in the past, and you need to learn what advice is good advice and what advice isn't. And that's hard to know. So that's why having a group, get, you know, if everyone says the same thing, if everyone says, hey, your book makes is really angry at the reader and it makes me uncomfortable. If yeah. everybody's saying that, that is advice to listen to. If they're saying, I don't understand what's happening in the scene or your protagonist is inconsistent. But if one person just says, I don't like it because I think this is disgusting and yeah. they won't give you anything else then ignore it, trash. Yeah. yeah, I know. <laughs> Occasionally in the online writing group I was in, I, could, I got some feedback. It wasn't necessarily mean, but it just clearly showed that the person hadn't read my piece carefully or that they didn't really know anything mm -hmm. about it. And that I was able to just be like, okay, take that with a yeah. grain of salt. Yeah, um, exactly. You learn which advice to take and which is not, which isn't a writing mistake on this list, but it is something you absolutely need if you want to be a writer, especially a professional one. You need to learn how to have those boundaries. So yeah. not on topic, but yes, good. Yeah. Writing groups are great. Yes. Go writing groups. Okay. So last thing on your list, Christy, is the most important. Please tell us about the yes. most important item on your list. The worst sin a book can commit and it's probably not whatever you're thinking it's probably not that this is the worst thing in my opinion a book can be and it's not being bad we've talked about a lot of things that make a book bad but it's actually not even being bad hmm. sorry i'm drinking my coffee over here <laughs> yeah, <it's important. laughs> um what is the worst thing a book can be um it is being 
not being bad. It is being boring. Every other item on this list is fixable or forgivable, but this is the book killer. If your book is boring, if a work doesn't pull your audience in by the first couple of chapters, like for me personally, I'm out. Yeah. If I, you know, I am that person that will put a book down. You know, yeah. I'm not like you. I don't necessarily finish. I don't have time. I right. mean, right. if I'm not really into a book and especially if it's part of a series, I am putting that book down. I'm probably quicker to do it than many people just because of how chaotic my life is. And there was a time in my life. It wasn't like that. Now it is. Um, but if it is boring, the majority of people won't even give it that long. They won't even give it a few chapters. If they pick it up and the first chapter doesn't draw them in, many of them will just disappear and never come back. If the first three to four to five chapters don't, you've lost 80% of your readers right there because they will not give it that chance. Some might. If it's boring to the end, then you lose that remaining 20%. If it's a series, they will not read the rest of it. They will finish the book. They will not finish the series. There's plenty of bad fiction out there that still has readers, fans, and even haters. I mean, yeah. there are people that will read a bad book. There are people that love bad work. It, they exist. Um, it can still get an audience, even if it's a small one. Boring work, though, cannot. It will be cast aside and forgotten. And what this really means, I'll break this down further. The audience needs a reason to keep reading. Why should they care about these characters in this universe? Why should they care about what you've created? This is a question that needs to be answered early and reaffirmed throughout the entire book. Why should they care? Um, a boring work indicates that there are serious problems with either the narrative or with the author's storytelling skill overall. And neither of those is a quick, easy fix. So my rule that I follow, because I've written stuff that I go back and read, I'm like, this is really boring. I'm just like falling asleep. And it's my own work, you know? Um, my rule that I follow is that if I'm bored writing it, then the reader will be bored reading it. Um, if I'm in a slump like that, it usually means I'm doing something wrong and I need to kind of rethink it, put it down, walk away, work on something else for a while. Because if it's boring, there is no fixing that. Like, don't, do not proceed for me personally. I will not yeah. proceed if I'm just really bored. And it's like a dead end. Instead of, you know, you're walking somewhere you hit your, you hit a wall and, you, you know, do you punch through the wall or do you turn around and, and go the other way? Like, yeah. you know, that's a dead end and you need to take that as an indication that, you know, something's just not right. Yeah. So, um, and it's also important to clarify here that boring is not measured by the action taking place in a scene. Um, it's by the impact the work has on the reader. So a, another example, one of the best books I've ever read is the book Day by Ellie Weasel. Highly recommend it. And that book is nothing but two characters sitting in a room for the entire book. But it's incredibly tense and incredibly well-written. So, I mean, I can tell you what's going on in that book and why it is, but- Is it the sequel I don't, to Night? It is. It's actually Night. part of a- it's and a trilogy, See, right? I know the two, it is the trilogy and okay. I've read two of the three. I didn't even know there was a third one because I read these so many years ago. Um, but yes, night was amazing. Day was really good. Day is two people sitting in a room. That is the entire book. But here's why it's tense and interesting. I'll kind of give you a little bit. You were informed right from the start that one of them is supposed to die. One oh. of them is not supposed to leave that room. Okay. And that is why it is so tense. That yeah. Is, but he spends a hundred pages building well, that tension. Over a hundred really cool. pages. Yeah. Yeah. So 
it, far from a boring book. Yeah. I wanted to go back to something you said about, you know, when an author is bored, it, you know, they're in a slump and their readers are probably going to be bored too. I know sometimes I write really boring stuff when I don't know where the plot is going next. And so I just mm -hmm. get bogged down in this like day in the life stuff, which can be really interesting, but sometimes yeah. you can tell that the author is just stalling um, or needs a good editor to go through <laughs> and be like, take this out. It doesn't need to be. Anything. Or it's making, <laughs> make it something to bridge different parts of their work that right. they are not into. And right. I keep that as short as possible. Yeah. If I'm writing something that needs that bridge, I'm like, this is the time to just get through it quick and move on. Yeah. Cause that if I'm bored, it should not be more than a paragraph. Yeah. Like, so I would say, I mean, Get I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing for a writer to kind of like write through those sections, but they need to be willing to mm -hmm. go back and say, okay, this is not serving the yeah. story. I'm going to cut it out. <laughs> well, I see it as just playing around in your own notes. Like that's part of working through it. It doesn't mean, I think though that that should stay in the domain of notes and like your own personal writing. Cause I have yeah. so much stuff that, you know, is just kind of personal musings, but it will never, ever be published and never yeah. see. And I think most writers do. Yeah. But yeah, that's kind of, yeah, part of working through it is the author needs to push through, but the reader should not ever have to read it right? if it's right. boring. Yeah. 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 Another good reason to yeah. be in good a writing point. group because people can tell you like, this is really interesting or this is not interesting to anybody but you. I'm sorry. <laughs> They'll or if they just straight up, <laughs> if they straight up fall asleep while oh, you're well. reading your, your yeah. thing, then you're like, all right, we need to rethink this. <laughs> that's, that's a good that's a good sign. Yeah. Well, Christy, thank you so much. This was so interesting, but I have one more question for you. Um, so we've been sure. focusing on things that make you put down a book. What is the number one thing that will capture your attention and make you keep reading a book? Um, so I think this is, and see, this is a much harder question, I think, because it's much easier to critique what's wrong than what's right. Yeah. And, but I, I thought about this and okay. I think the things in my favorite works and my favorite books out there is just the intrigue in the world, the world, the characters, the plot, and it's the inviting factor. And this is why a bad book will still have readers because if the world is inviting and just draws you in, you want to know more, you want to feel like a part of it, you're excited. Yeah. You know, you're excited to dive into this world and even a bad book can still have that just element to it that, yeah. you know, it's kind of, you, you can't even put a name to it, but it pulls you in. It draws you in. It's just that magic. Yeah. And I think there isn't a formula for doing that. It's just that the author knows what they're doing. They believe in it. They believe in their characters and they trust the creative process. And even if a story is told badly, I think that passion still comes through the work. Yeah, I so agree. Passion is the number one element. And you can tell when a writer is passionate and when they're not. Yeah. Passion is the number one element that keeps me reading. If the writer is invested in what they're doing, they care about this world, they care about the characters, then I think it will come through to the reader and they will too. Yeah. So a passionate writer, I think, is the biggest element for success and readership of a book. And that's what makes me keep reading. If the writer cares enough mm -hmm. to produce a clean, polished novel and enough to write an entire series about their characters even yeah. and, and an entire book you know if they just really care about this world and the reader knows and they can see that yeah so yeah I totally agree yeah. it, it goes back to something that you said earlier about a good plot should feel like it was discovered not like it was mm -hmm. contrived by the author and I think the same goes too for settings 
and characters like they all should feel like they have an existence outside of the writer and I actually wrote about that some in my doctoral dissertation because I think that two authors that have done that really well are Charles Dickens but I've talked enough about him but and J.K. Rowling um her I I feel like she just and and she says this that like Harry Potter kind of just like came to her and I mean that's not that's that's sort of a unhelpful way of talking about it because it, it came to her because she did lots of reading on every writer knows what you're talking about right but yeah you know, every right, writer like, knows and it was like she just like stumbled upon this world and it feels like that and I I have said that J.K. Rowling is a fan of her own story and I don't think that's I don't mean that in an arrogant way I mean that she like just loves the world of Harry Potter and that's why she actually hasn't let it go and she keeps writing stuff for you know her website and like writing the movies and all that kind of stuff the Fantastic Beast movies um because she loves those characters in that world and she wants to be playing in it for the rest of her life even if she doesn't make any more money off of it I think so um that passion (laughs) is there and I've now this obviously isn't true for everything I've written there's some things I've written where I just read it back and I'm like let's burn this later. But, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, no, yeah. there's some things I've written that I just read because I enjoy them. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean they're the best thing ever. That doesn't mean they're, you know, literary brilliance. I just like reading it. I like yeah. spending time in what I've done and a universe and it's fun. Yeah. It's fun for me. And I, I think that passion translates to the reader. They can tell when an author is in love with their work and they're passionate about their work. And that's what makes me keep reading is if the author can communicate that through their work to the reader, they will stick around and I will stick around. Yeah. So yeah, that's, and I've read the entire Harry Potter series and I agree it's there. Um, I've read many other series and it's, it's there too. And even like Tolkien who had arguably very slow plotting novels, Mm -hmm. but it, you couldn't argue that the passion wasn't there and it came through the work and I have read all of them and it's, yeah. you know it's it's wonderful and it's brilliant and it's and at the time when those were released they were panned by critics like yeah. critics hated them it but but fans loved them <laughs> yeah so, the passion was there yeah, critics yeah. were like no one will ever read this they're boring Wrong. but they weren't yeah Wrong. Yeah. yeah um so I think that yeah that that is the wow factor for me is the author's passion communicated through the work to the reader in you know the action the characters the everything they discovered this world and they want you to know about it too and be a part of it and you know don't write a book that hates your audience because that passion was not there in fact it was memorable when it's not in an otherwise talented writer right talent will not make up for a lack of passion it doesn't and it can't yeah Um, obviously talent is an element to success but it is not the only element and by itself it doesn't matter how smart you are if you can't communicate that and it doesn't matter how talented you are if you are not passionate about your work the reader knows yeah definitely so yeah passion is that element yes all right well I'm glad we (laughs) ended on that positive note um um, and and I'm glad and all the all the the everything on your list was really helpful I hope this is really helpful to all of you who um are listening whether you're an author or not maybe it'll help you um you know decide how to spend your time on books you know, your limited time that you have yeah. for reading. So, um, Christy, thank you for being here. This was a lot of fun. I would love yeah. to have you on another episode sometime in the future. Um, but for now, this was a lot of fun. So, uh, It's Lit Time with Dr. Tess is coming back in August with a couple uh, more guest episodes. Um, thank you so much for listening, as always. And I will talk to you next time. <laughs>